Luke chapter 5 is where we're going to be this morning. And I'll go ahead and read the questions for our podcast listeners. First question is, what does it mean to see Jesus as he really is? What does it mean to see Jesus as he really is? Number two, what does it mean to see ourselves as we really are? What does it mean to see ourselves as we really are? And number three, it's a big one. This is a doozy. Take note. How does the truth that Jesus uses sinful people to accomplish his purposes encourage you, challenge you, or both? I'll give you a little extra time to write that one down. A little bit longer. A little bit longer. All right. So in the last two weeks, as we've, we closed out chapter 4, and now moving into chapter 5, Jesus' ministry is full on. Uh, he has uh, been preaching and doing ministry throughout Galilee, throughout the region of, of Galilee. So he has been, for specific cities we know, he's been in Capernaum, he's been in Nazareth. Um, and he has been preaching in his ministry with authority and with power. Teaching the Word of God with such power and with such authority that the people were astonished, they were amazed, not just because of the eloquence of his words, but the authority by which he preached. He preached with the authority that it was coming from him. It wasn't coming from anybody else. It wasn't quoting anybody else, but it was an authority that was coming out of, coming out of him, from him, and that was the authority that he was preaching. We saw also how uh, Jesus uh, casted out demons, showing that he has authority over evil, the authority over the, over the spiritual realm of darkness. We also saw how Jesus had the authority and the power to, over sickness and disease and paralysis and defects and fevers and handicaps and, and, and all the various things that the people of uh, Capernaum could could bring to Jesus that night after the day he preached in the synagogue. That Jesus showed that he could heal and he can restore and do anything. Such, such, showed such power. By his words, he could heal. And by that time, the people of Capernaum wanted Jesus to stay in Capernaum to be their doctor. Right? I mean, that, that would be pretty cool. Right? Anybody would want Jesus to be on his side, on their side, on their team. And so here they were. Jesus says to them, I must go. And I must be about preaching the good news, as he said to the people in Nazareth, preaching the good news to the kingdom of God. Preach the good news of the kingdom of God to other towns and to other cities. With power and with authority, Jesus, that he was exercising, he was exercising the authority and power of the kingdom of God. The king is here. That's the announcement. That's the, the, uh, the idea behind all of those miracles and the healings and the casting out is to show people that the king has returned, that the king is here, and God's kingdom is coming. And so we will see that throughout Luke. 31 more times, actually, Luke will refer to the kingdom of God. And as we walk through last week's passage, we saw a progression take place on how the kingdom of God works itself out and we first saw how it works itself out in the, in the church. Because the church is the actual physical manifestation of God's kingdom reign in our world today. That's a big statement, so I'm going to say it again. That the church is the physical manifestation of God's kingdom reign in the world today. We're it. We represent the kingdom of God. There's no other place. There's no other entity. There's no other organization that's as unique as the church, because we have this purpose. We have this purpose of, of representing, and even in our failures and even in our smallness, to represent the kingdom of God in our world today. I like how uh, Jonathan Lehman has put it in our books, uh, Church Membership and Church Discipline, is that he calls the church this, this embassy for the kingdom of God. We're, we're an embassy representing God's kingdom in Statesboro. 
Sovereign grace, that, that is us. We are an embassy for God's people. The second level, we saw the progression, how it moves to the, king, to the city, right? So the, these embassies are, are put strategically, I believe, by God in cities, in places, like in Statesboro and, 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 and all over our country. And we, as Sovereign Grace Church, have been sovereignly, specifically, strategically placed here by God to make his kingdom known in this area, to be a blessing to the people around us. And the blessing that we, that we bring is not just meeting the needs of, our, of the people around us as the physical hands of Jesus, but the blessing of the gospel, of taking the gospel to our people, to our cities, to our county. We're it. We're it. We are the, we are the blessing of God to our city. This is how important the church is to our town, to our city. In the third level, we saw how the, the good news of the kingdom of God is for the nations. And so Jesus says that, I can't stay here. I can't stay in Capernaum. I've got to go. I've got other places to go. This, this message, this kingdom is not just for Capernaum or Nazareth, but it is for the nations. It's for the, for the world. And so for us, when we understand how the kingdom of God is working in us, and throughout our city, it breathes and brings about this kingdom mindset that keeps us looking further than just Statesboro or Bullock County or even our home state or even our country, but it looks to the nations because we want the nations to glorify and worship Christ. We have to look further into the world. So, so this is the kingdom mindset that has been set before us by Jesus, by him already setting for us this progression on how the kingdom goes how the kingdom goes throughout from us. So let's look at Luke chapter 5, and let's see how the kingdom continues to find its way and working its way through the Son of God, the King who has come. Look at Luke chapter 5, starting in verse 1. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret. And he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put him out a little from land. And he sat down and he taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. But at your word, I will let down the net. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in, in the other boat to, to come and help them, and they came and filled both their boats so that they began to sink. Verse 8, But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' feet, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of the fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on you'll be catching men. And they had... And when they had brought their boats to land, they, let, they left everything and followed him. May the Lord continually add his blessings and joy to our hearts as we read his word and study it together this morning. All right, so let's unpack our text. Let's, 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 let's look at this story. Let's, let's bring it apart. Let's, let's just cut it apart a little bit and, and help us to understand contextually what's happening in, in this story. So the first thing I want you to notice, when you see it, when Luke uses the, the, the little word there, the little phrase, Lake of Gennesaret, like let's not get too worried, all right? Lake Gennesaret is actually a part of the Sea of Galilee, okay? It's like a, it's like a little piece of, of, of the Sea of Galilee. It's like a little cove almost, but it's big enough where they can go fishing and they can catch large amounts of fish and, and things like that. So, so Lake Gennesaret is a part of the Sea of Galilee, and where they were, it's the northern part of the sea, which means he was near Capernaum. 
So sometime around the time he was in the, uh, the synagogue on the Sabbath, was at Simon's uh, house healing the mother-in-law and everybody. At some point on one occasion, as it says, uh, there is Jesus gathering, going to the Sea of, of Gennesaret, and Jesus begins to preach and teach. Now, already there's something different here, not just because he's gathered at a lake, but he's not at a synagogue. You see that? Jesus is not at a synagogue right now. And he's on this, this, this seashore, right, or this, this lake. So you, can, you got the picture. We've, we've been to the lake. We understand this. Jesus is at the lake. He's at the shore. He's, he's teaching in the crowd, Right? The crowd begins to gather more and more and more because Jesus was becoming more and more popular. Right? He was becoming a popular preacher that people wanted to see. And they would gather, and it became such a case that Jesus could not actually teach everybody because there were so many. There were so many people. Jesus was, says, the text says it was pressing on him. They were pressing in on him. We don't have that problem this morning, do we? We got, we got space. Right, they, were, they were pressing in on him. And so Jesus sees these two boats sitting there as these, these guys, uh, Simon and, and some other guys, folding their nets and washing their nets. Jesus sees these boats and says, hey, look, I got a floating pulpit. And he, and he asks, hey, let me get in your boat. Push me off the shore so I can actually see everybody and project and preach effectively. And, of course, since Jesus already has an end with, end with, the, uh, with the owner of the boat, no problem. Pushes them out, Jesus sits down, and he begins to teach. And there is Simon, uh, uh, Peter, helping him there and, and pushing him out in this, this floating pulpit. Now, these fishermen that are there, now this is kind of the real story, right? We're kind of getting down to the, to the real story. There's these fishermen that are there, right? You have... You have Simon, who was told to us the story. The parallel passage, Mark, or Matthew, Matthew 4 and Mark chapter 1, tell us that, that Simon is with his brother, his brother Andrew, right? And they're partners as fishermen in their little fishing business, as well as we see later, John and James are with them too. And they have two boats. They're both two guys, two brothers, working together to catch fish in the lake of Gennesaret that day. Now, Context gives us a little bit more of, about these guys. They didn't fish in the day. They fished at night. They fished at night because it's too daggum hot to fish in the daytime, right? So they fished at night. And they would, the way that they would fish is not the way. We, we would go out with a pole, and they would go out with these large nets, and then they would work together in bringing these nets around, and finally they would scoop up a hole, kind of like how people um, shrimp, you know, we see the shrimping boats and, and things like that, and they would, they would finally draw them all in together, and they would see what they would catch. And this was an all-night affair. It would take all night. You start in the evening, early evening, you go out to, the, to your boats, and you start spreading those nets out, and you pull them in in the morning. You see what you got. You clean your fish, whatever it may be, and then you fix your nets, you mend your nets, you untangle them. Uh, you thought monofilament was hard to untangle. Can you imagine nets? Uh, and, and that's what they were doing. They're sitting on the shore, and it happened to be a bad night of fishing for them, and, and yet a good morning because there's Jesus teaching as they're folding their nets. Now, I'm not a fisherman. Uh, I, I like to go fishing, uh, but I'm not a fisherman. And the reasons why I don't go a lot because I just don't eat fish. I just don't eat them. So I think if you like fish, you'll go, you'll go fishing. But there's a, there's a big difference between a fisherman and a guy who just goes fishing. Now, it can be kind of confusing in our culture today because we got places like Bass Pro Shop where anybody can go spend a ton of money and they can make themselves feel like they are a good fisherman. Right? I can come with all kinds of examples here. Like, how about, like, yoga pants, right? Everybody feels like they're in shape because they wear yoga pants, right? So I can make it contextual if you want me to for you, right? Because not everybody's a fisherman. Or hunters, right? You can do that. You can go spend everything. But that doesn't make you, you know, necessarily a, a good huntsman, right? Is that a word? That is a word, huntsman, right? So a person who's a, a, a hunter, a professional hunter. But these guys were professionals, right? They didn't just have a couple rods and a small tackle box. This is what they, this is what they, they did. 
They didn't just throw their nets out hoping that they would catch something. They knew what they were doing. And that's the difference between a real fisherman and a, and a, and a, and a kind of a fake fisherman kind of like me. Like I, I, can know, I know how to lure a line, but I don't know what kind of worm is what and where it should go or, or any of that. And every, with every cast, it's always with that hopeful expectation, like I got the lottery ticket and I want to win kind of thing, right? You just want to reel something in, but truthfully, you have no idea what you're doing. But if, you go, if you've ever gone with a real fisherman, the real fishermen know where the fish are. They, they know where to go. They say out of, out of all the water, fish are only in 10% of the water, and that's why they're called fishermen. And there's actually people who can make money fishing. How crazy is that? Not just professionally to sell the fish, but professionally to compete. It's amazing. These guys were professionals, and they had a bad night. They had a, they had a, a bad night. They didn't catch one single fish. So here's the context. Jesus is teaching. They're exhausted. Jesus is proclaiming the good news of the kingdom to all those who are gathered. Good news to the poor. Liberty to the captives. Sight to the blind. Liberty to those who are oppressed and to proclaim the year's favor. Remember, that's what he is preaching, that Isaiah 61 passage. That's the, that's the theme, the kingdom of God he's bringing to these, to these people. But here is why Jesus came down to the shore that day, I believe. He came down to that shore that day to ask Peter to go fishing to take him fishing. So, so he gets done teaching. People are probably still there. He's done teaching. And he looks at Simon and he says, Hey, Simon, take, let's go out to the deep and let's throw your nets out. Now, you can imagine what this professional fisherman's thinking, right? Here's Jesus, a good teacher. Yeah. I saw him do some amazing things at my house, healing my mom-in-law and everyone else that showed up that night. But I'm a fisherman. He's a carpenter and a good teacher. And I just got done folding all my nets. <laughs> and then I'm exhausted. I've been, up, I've been up all night long. So when we read uh, Peter's reply here, when he says, Master, we told all night long but nothing, I think we can sympathize with that a little bit. Because sometimes Jesus asks us to do some pretty odd things. He asks us to put some things out of our lives that we enjoy, that may be good. And we ask questions. And so I think we can sympathize with Peter's restraint here and his hesitancy. But I think we can also sympathize and understand his obedience too. Because he says, but at your word... I will lay down my nets. I like this because, because it shows to us that, that even though that we have hesitancies and we have, we have, we have uh, burdens on our hearts and maybe this is kind of a weird command and what Jesus is requiring us to do, to share the gospel with someone that we feel very awkward to share the gospel with, we hear the word of the Lord and we, we obey. We can understand that. We, can, we press in. We lean into to, to Jesus' word. Notice the title that Jesus or that Peter calls Jesus. He calls him Master there. See that? He calls him Master. And isn't this a, a sign and a sense of what, uh, what is to come? Did, did you know that in the, in the Gospels, only those who followed Jesus called him Master? Everybody else called him Teacher or Good Teacher. Isn't that a sign of what's to come? And there's even more to that later. We're going to explain to that later by the second thing that Peter addresses Jesus, the second title that, that Peter addresses Jesus by. In verse 6 and 7, after they, you know, they put down their nets, it tells us what happened, net happens next. Um, he goes out with Andrew. And they're throwing out these nets. These guys are exhausted, you know, probably reluctantly putting these nets out slowly, you know, that doing a chore or a job that you don't really want to do, what do you end up doing? You usually take a long time doing it. And that's what they're doing. They're just doing it. And then all of a sudden, the fish start filling up that net. The fish start filling. Here's the, the middle of the day. And the fish are swimming into the net. And the nets begin to fill up and overload to the point where these two guys, guys that are built like you, Kenny, Right, huge, big, muscular dudes. And, and they can't pull, they can't pull this net up. 
So they call their pros, James, John, get out here. And they bring their boat out, and they throw their nets out, and they begin to fill up too. Now, these boats are not little dinghies, okay? And, and actually, I think if you go to a couple of museums, and I wish I knew the name of the museum. Um, is it in London? It's either London or definitely the wonders in, in uh, Jerusalem. Um, but there is the, their boats. They found boats that Galilean fishermen used to use in the first century. And, and they were about seven and a half feet wide. That's a pretty good, pretty good berth of a, of a, of a boat. Right? And, and they were 27 feet long. That's pretty big. That these guys were rowing out and, and spreading these nets. And, and, and the, the text tells us that the boats begin to overflow with fish so much. The fish were eager to get in the boat that the boats were about to sink. Clearly something miraculous has happened here. Clearly something amazing happened. These guys are astonished. James and John are astonished. They are, they are shocked. And, and we don't even know what the crowd is thinking. Besides, hey, we got dinner. Looks like the prices of fish are going to get drove down. Right? We got dinner, right? So there's this, this raw outpouring of authority that Jesus shows once again but this authority over the power of nature. We'll see this over and over again, that even the fish of the sea are obedient to Jesus. They're obedient to Jesus as if he was God. I mean, I can imagine what these, these good Jewish guys are thinking about. These fish are as obedient to Jesus like the frogs were to God in Egypt, or the locusts, or the, or the flies or the sea, or, the, or the, the, uh, the river Nile turning red. Nature obeys this guy. And so here's Peter struggling with this catch, excited. But yet when he realized what came over him, what you, there's almost like this sheet of terror that fell over him as the chaos of thousands of jumping fish in his boat which is all crazy if you have one fish jumping in your boat. He looks to Jesus, and he falls down on his knees as dead. And he, and he cries out, right? He, he falls on his knees, and he cries out, Depart from me! Get off my boat! Go away! Why was Peter struggling here? You see, Jesus came to Peter, and he came right at Peter, right where Peter lived, didn't he? He came at Peter right where he was. He came right into Peter's world, and he said, I'm king over that too, Peter. He came right into Peter's world. He said, your boat, your lake, this, this net, I have power and authority beyond any which way you ever could imagine or have ever seen. I have great power and authority. I am more than just a teacher. I am more than just a healer. But I am Lord of the fish, and I am Lord of the fishermen. I am the Lord of men, and I am a Lord of their work. I am sovereign. So on the surface of this message, the surface of this, this passage, we, we do see Jesus calling Simon, showing power and authority, another miracle proving exactly who he was. And we certainly can get lost in the endless speculation on fish and how many there was and what types and things like that. You've heard people talk things like that. But below the surface, we can see more particularly because we can see the emotion and how raw it was for Peter in his expression to Jesus. A complete surprise to, to what we believe human nature should have reacted by. What did Peter see? Peter saw Jesus. Peter saw Jesus as he really is. Yet just in a glimpse. And then Peter saw himself in light of who Jesus is. 
So this passage shows us Jesus. It shows us that he is God. It shows us that he is, he is the king. And as Peter was struck with the reality of, of who Jesus was, and this, and this now this God, Jesus standing in his boat, and as he was struck down by his own awareness of himself and his sinfulness because of the holiness of God that was before him, I think that this passage shows us this morning ourselves in light of who Jesus is, as well as it shows us a right response when we encounter Christ. It shows us how we, we are to come away from an encounter with the Son of God. So Peter's situation is our situation. Peter's encounter is like our encounter. We too first must see Jesus as he really is. So I said before that he, he called him Master. And in verse 10, when he said, Depart from me, for I am a sinner, O Lord, he calls him Lord. And the, word, the Greek word there, Lord, can actually mean Lord or Master. But the first time that he used the word Master was not the same word. That's how we know he called him Lord this time. What was Jesus expressing here? We don't, we don't fully know or understand if, if he completely grasped exactly yet if, if this is you know, Jesus, the Son of God. In fact, I don't think he has yet. I think he catches a glimpse of, of the divine, the divinity of, of, of Christ and, and that work of, that, of the gospel kind of continues to work in this man until his final confession we see in Matthew 18, 16, Matthew 16. We see that, that, that take place. But he calls him Lord. That he, has, that he has some authority that, that Peter does not, and it terrifies him. You see, human beings are always terrified in the presence of the holy. Human beings are always terrified in the presence of holy. We are always in fear when we come to face with what is holy. When we come before something that is majestic. In fact, every time we see the Lord show up in the Old Testament, every one of the participants, whoever it may be, they're always terrified. They're always afraid. They're always panicked before the holiness of God. It doesn't matter who they are. Moses, Joshua, Isaiah, Isaiah, the great prophet, right? We know this text, we've heard it, Isaiah 6. As he saw the, the Lord in a vision who was high and lifted up in his, in his throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. He saw the Lord high and lifted up, and there were seraphim and angels that filled the temple, and they were singing, Holy, Holy, Holy. And Isaiah was not moved in Isaiah chapter 6 to adoration and worship like the angels were. Isaiah, the prophet of the Lord, was not brought to joy in the presence of God before the presence of the Lord, before the holiness of God, this prophet of God was filled with dread and terror that he fell on his face as a dead man crying out, Woe is me! I am a man undone, and I dwell with men of unclean lips. He falls broken and dead before the throne of God. We can kind of, now, we can kind of understand that with with, with Isaiah, but, but look at Peter. Peter's in a boat. Oh, the magnificence of our Savior. The holiness of our Savior. R.C. Sproul, in commenting on this passage in his classic book, The Holiness of God, he said, we notice that Jesus did not lecture Peter about his sin. There was no rebuke, no word of judgment. All Jesus did was to show Peter how to catch a fish. 
but when the holy is manifest and no words are needed to express it. Peter got the message that was impossible to miss. The transcendent standard of all in right of all righteousness and all purity blazed before his eyes. Like Isaiah before him, Peter was undone. Peter was undone. Now, in a lot of our cultural understanding of Christianity and the Bible, a lot of us would think that fear is not a healthy or good response to God. In fact, some people would even say it is an improper view of God to not, to not fear Him. Don't, don't fear Him, right? Because after all, God is love. And perfect love casts out what? Fear. But it's exactly the response that the holiness of God puts on a person. But it is the proper response that the Lord requires. When we realize that Jesus is Lord and that He is our all, and that we know that He knows all and that He is sovereign over all and He's perfect in holiness and that He is righteous, then it takes us to our knees and us too. We like Peter beg for mercy. You don't understand Christ and you don't understand the gospel if, if it doesn't bring you to, in a sense, a begging for mercy. For, for pleading for grace. We cannot approach our Savior with such flippant terms of trying to just peddle forgiveness or achieve forgiveness. But we come as broken, undone, because He is holy. When we realize that Jesus is Lord, and that He is our all, and knows that He is sovereign over all, perfect and holy, and righteous, and that takes us to our knees and begs, and that keeps us begging for mercy. And it's phrases like those. It's phrases like those when they, when they become more than just cheesy posters that we've seen in our church buildings all our life or, or the banners, Jesus is Lord, and when they become real to us. The terrifying fact that Jesus is Lord, brothers and sisters, and that He is holy is condemning billions to hell. Billions. And yet in the same vein, it is our righteousness. We must see Jesus as He really is. And second, we must see our sin as it really is. Why was Peter bowing down? Peter, why was Peter bowing down and begging Jesus to leave? To get away? He was terrified. And the reason why he was terrified and he wasn't worshiping and he wasn't praising God and he wasn't thankful for all the fish and all the, the financial windfall that him and his family were going to get. No, it's because he was undone because of his sin. And the reason why he was undone because of his sin, because he was in the face of something that was infinitely holy. The light of the world stood before him and it protruded a light upon his heart into a soul that flooded his mind and flooded his heart where he can see only his darkness in his soul. He was flooded with the sense of his own evil, the hollowness of his heart, his, his spiritual poverty and blindness, and the realization of the consequences of all his sin. This is a response of brokenness and undoneness. I just made that word up, by the way. Undoneness. He's been ripped apart by the holiness of God right before him. And it made him to cry out in fear for Jesus to leave him. It may seem like destructive fear, fear that's unhealthy, as we talked about before, maybe unhealthy, but it is a fear. But this is the fear, the fear of the Lord, the fear of Christ that is merciful. To fear the Lord is the mercy of God in your life and is not weakness. 
to be exposed by the holiness of God is not destructive, but it leads to mercy. Because of the moral agony, the struggle, the brokenness over sin, this is merciful. It's the mercy of God to just completely undo us, to break us, and to expose us. Because it's right then and there where Peter, even though he's asking Jesus to depart, I think he's, in a sense, it's going to lead him to ask for grace. And it's in those moments then when we see grace of forgiveness. So for the first time, Peter, this faithful fisherman, right? Good guy, good family guy, doing his work, showing up. I mean, having his mom-in-law over for dinner, that's pretty good of a guy. You know, we saw that last week. And here's Peter. For the first time, he could see. Right? He could see. The blindness, blindness was taken off. He could see the ugly, disappointing, as shameful as it was, Peter could see. But Peter was blessed because he mourned over his wretchedness. You see, so often we don't want to deal with our sin. We don't want to deal with it. As Jesus exposes it, we still try to sweep it under the rug. We don't want to deal with it. We, we naturally, in our own fleshly state, we want to downplay our sinfulness. We, we can't, if we can't see it, then I don't have to believe it, right? If I don't have to believe it's true or see it, then it can't be true. We treat our sinful actions as, as something that is casual, with very little brokenness or repentance. And the reason why we've done that is because we have not experienced the severity of the holiness of God. We have not seen the darkness of our ways. You see, it's only when we see Christ, Jesus Christ, is when we will be able to really see ourselves and really diagnose the darkness that exists. Not only do we downplay our sinfulness, but we don't want to see ourselves as, as, as we really are. So we learn, we've, we've learned. We, we've learned in our Christian culture, we've, we've learned, we've trained ourselves to, to, this may sound shocking, but to keep Jesus at a distance. That's why Peter wanted him to leave. Because Peter knew with Jesus being there, he was being exposed. So we, we, we know if we can keep Jesus at a distance, I can deal with him that one, two hours on a Sunday morning, I'm going to keep him at a distance. I don't have to deal with him. If I can keep church at a distance, if I can keep brothers and sisters at a, at a distance, we hide things. We wear masks. We pretend. We don't share. We don't open up. Because we, we believe the lies and the think that how embarrassing it would be or how dreadful it would be to be known to be exposed, how dreadful that would be. And I've I got to ask the question, what's really driving us? You see, a fear of God, a fear of, the, of Christ did what with Peter? It brought him the grace, brought him the mercy. A fear of man does what? It perpetuates. It perpetuates itself of, of hiding more, becoming more reclusive, living to ourselves, and, and still living in fear of man, being in slavery to man. Man becomes bigger than God. Not a fear of Jesus, but a fear of man. We fear man more than God. The more we care about what others think about us, because if they only knew me, they knew my weaknesses and struggles, the more we fear man, the less we will deal with our sin. The less we will, we will deal with our sin. Because think about where the fear of man drives us. It drives us to lie. It, it, it drives us to be guarded. It, 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 it stunts and, and, and it hurts the growth in the body of Christ and the church. There's very little open and honesty and empathy with, with one another. It leads to more sin. It leads to continually living in shame and guilt. It helps us to not believe the gospel. 
to trust what others may believe about us and think about us other than what God has proclaimed over us? These are the the thoughts and actions of what sinners do. This is what we do. But the gospel has set us free from those things. This is what Christ has set us free from doing. Peter getting exposed was the best thing that ever happened to him. To be confronted with what is holy. To be struck by by our own sinful condition and our own sinful actions and our own self-righteousness. This is a proper response. And so the story doesn't stop. I, I kind of stopped there. Didn't you guys notice where I kind of stopped there at verse 9? Look at verse 10. Look at verse 10. See, see where it goes. I'm not going to read it, but you just see where it goes. See, see where it goes there. There's Peter. He's, he's undone. The people are astonished as, as, as Simon is. They're just shocked at what, what is happening. And yet there's this another surprising turn of events, something completely un, un, unheard of, right? Something even more surprising is we see grace. We see mercy. Because Jesus at this point doesn't look at Peter and say, Yep, Peter, you are a sinner. Dead. And you deserve it. Right? He doesn't do that. Right? Just as we saw in the, the quote from the holiness of God. He didn't sit there and Yep, Peter, you did this. You did this, Peter. You did this. And you did this. You deserve judgment, Peter. But you also know what he did, also didn't do? So let's kind of flip that around. He, he, didn't, he didn't downplay Peter. He didn't downplay his self-revelation. He didn't, he didn't try to build up Peter's self-esteem. He didn't say, oh, Peter, don't be so hard on yourself, buddy. You're not so bad. It's not you, it's your culture, it's someone else. Someone else made you do it. You're not as bad as you think. I love you. No. Rather, what we see is we see a call to Peter of great grace. Look what he says there. Look what he says there. He says, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. By the way, that's like every time God showed up, in the Old Testament, and the people get struck down and they fall on face, that's, they say, do not be afraid. Remember what Gabriel said to, to Mary? Don't be afraid. He said to Zechariah, chapter 1, don't be afraid. What, what, a, what, a, what a grace there. I know you, Peter. It's as if he's saying, peace be with you. And he says, from now on, changes his life, gives him a whole new direction of his life. Where Peter was identifying himself, I am a fisherman. He gives him a whole new calling, a whole new identity. From now on, you will be catching men. Yeah, Peter, fishing is good, bro. And when you get some vacay time, go fishing. It's fun, it's good. But I got something greater for you. I got a, a greater livelihood for you to come fishing with me. The fish I'm going for are bigger. I'm fishing for men. Literally, when that, that word, the catching, you see where it says catching men? Literally, that catching, it's a play on words because it means catching alive. And the reason why it's a play on words is because when, when someone goes fishing and they catch fish, what are they going to do with the fish? They're catching fish to their what? to their death, right? That's the end of those fish. They're going to become dinner for somebody or a cat or something. The cats eat fish, right? Become dinner. They die. But here the play on words is they're going to be made alive. You're going to, you're going to catch men alive. You're going to catch them alive. And once again, that play on words continues because the fish that you're going for are already dead. And when you catch them, they're going to come alive. Just like you, Peter. When you go catching for, for men, you're not catching them for their death. You're snatching them from death to life. What a glorious description of the gospel ministry. What a call to come and fish. 
And, and this is just so astounding once again because, because Jesus knew who Peter was. But that's why he was there to call these guys. Peter, he, he knew who Peter was. He, Jesus knew who Peter would be. He knew who Peter would be. He knew that Peter was going to deny him. He knew Peter was going to be the overzealous moron. I mean, if there's anybody in the Bible that's so encouraging to me as an idiot, it's Peter. There's so much hope for me. Because of him. Because Jesus looked at Peter and called him. Come to me. You're going to catch men. Why would he do that? Why would he call Peter? Why would he use us if Jesus can fill the nets at any time, at any place, and he can heal anyone, and he can cast demons out? Why would he want to use a guy like Peter? And why would he want to use a guy like me, or a girl like you, or a woman like you, or a man like you? Why? That's a good question. Why? I think Peter, or, or Paul, helps us understand this. In 1 Timothy 1.16, you can just write it down. I don't have it up on the screen. I didn't put it there. But 1 Timothy 1.16 says this. He says, But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To give us for eternal life. You see that? Although I'm the, I'm the worst of sinners, I received mercy. I've been given grace so that I might display His perfect patience to those, to others who will believe. I like that, right? Who were to believe, right? There's a good little significance to the elect. To those who will believe who God is going to give eternal life. We are their perfect patient, like we're God's perfect patient. So this is exactly the humble attitude that we have and why God has chosen us to be representatives, ambassadors in his kingdom to take the gospel not only in our church, but in our city and to the nations. It's because those who have stood in the presence of holiness, the majesty and the greatness of Christ, although we deserve wrath, and although we deserve, pace, or, uh, we deserve wrath and we deserve punishment, we are not cast out. But we are gloriously saved. And we are made new so that we would be little pictures, little signs, emojis, right? I put that in here, emojis. We're little emojis of God's perfect patience. That was hokey. But isn't it right? This is what we are. We're these little dumb pictures of God, but God uses us in such miraculous ways. And he uses us in our frailty, in our weakness, because it points to his glory. Look what I can do through this person. Look what I did through Peter, a nobody fisherman from Galilee, who is, we already talked about, is an idiot in a lot of ways. And yet God uses him in miraculous ways. Like lighthouses. Paul says, like stars shining in the darkness. Shooting stars shining in the darkness, the glory and the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. We encounter His holiness. We encounter His Lordship, seeing Jesus as He really is, so that we can see who we are. And when we, are, when we see those two things, that's when we become caught up caught alive to follow. And, and, and look at the last verse. What does it say they did? They left everything. I don't need my boat. I don't need it. I don't need my, my livelihood. I don't, I don't need these things. I'm going after something greater. I'm going after something more glorious. I am following the Savior. Paul said that I count all things as rubbish in comparison to knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Brothers and sisters, do you count everything as loss? Have you left everything? Or are you still a slave to everything? Really quickly, I want to close by this. 
You don't have to turn there. And I was going to read it, and I wanted to read it. It was from John chapter 21. After Jesus resurrected from the dead, the, 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 you know, everyone's still kind of scattered, and, and um, Peter goes out with his, with his buddies, and they're, they're kind of hanging out. And they kind of don't know what's going on. And, um, and, and I think they already know Jesus is alive and stuff, so just keep it in context. And, and they're sitting around, and Peter's just like, dudes, I'm going fishing. And so him and a couple guys, they go out fishing, doing his thing, getting some perspective. You know, Peter, Peter just denied Jesus a couple days earlier. And he's just trying to get some perspective. And they go fishing, and they're not catching anything. And without them realizing, Jesus actually walks up to the shore. And walks up to the shores, and he, he calls them children. If you look at it, John chapter 12, he says, children! I love that. Throw your nets down right there. You'll catch some fish. Okay, buddy. They don't even know it's him. They throw their nets out. And guess what happens? Their nets just fill up once again, right? I mean, this is like deja vu, right? They didn't, they didn't know that word yet. Deja vu, right? Did this already happen? And, and one of the guys, I think it was James, I may be wrong, I'm John, turns around and says, Jesus! It's, it's him! Peter turns around. And guess what Peter does? Did you know that he doesn't fall on his knees in fear and terror? You know what he does? He takes off his shirt and he jumps in the water and he swims to the Savior. He swims to Jesus. You see, the, the more we know our sin, the more we know of Jesus, the more we will run to him. And in this case, the more we will swim to him. He and he only has made a sacrifice for our sins. That this very thing that, that once drove us away to hide from God and to hide from one another is the very thing that draws us now together. He alone took them away from us and He alone has forgiven us. He alone can put our lives back together. Our brothers and sisters, do you realize that you are a sinner? Do you know that you need Jesus? Run to Him. Follow Him. Join us together and let's catch some men alive. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word this morning. I pray that as we, as your church, as your body, help us to see you. God, give us by your spirit glimpses of your greatness and your glory through your word. Take the scales off the hardness that is built up on our souls, the, 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 the weight and the chains that has been encumbering us for so long. Let us cast them aside that we may run this race faithfully and follow our Savior, leaving everything aside to follow Him, to take on this glorious mi mission of catching men alive. Oh Lord, help us now. For your glory and for our joy. Amen.